0: The talk tonight is about cleansing the heart and bringing together the soft heart of a child with the wise, compassionate part of ourselves. I'd like to begin with a quotation from a book called The Mirror for the Moon, since the moonlight is out tonight. There's some light again. Sunlight, moonlight. He said, well, this is by Saigyo, Making my way through the whirling rapids of Miataki River, I have the sense of being washed clean to the base of my heart. So I hope uh, you are getting the sense of your heart getting washed clean. This retreat. Um, And in that process of cleansing, um, there's a kind of cycling that happens that Steve referred to last night, and I'd like to refer to that and hopefully um, talk about why that cycling can be hard to go through. So one way that I like to talk about that uh, process of the heart being cleansed in um, this practice is the cycling through of purity and purification. Uh, And I I feel that when we start to come to understand this process, that in actual fact, um, the ways that our heart has become encrusted over, you know, that that soft, gentle, joyful heart of a child starts to become more and more accessible as we um, um, are willing to go through the purification so so that one way to think of that is that if you took um, warm, soapy water and you took a dirty cloth in it, what would happen? You know, dirt would come out. you know, and part of the process of being here. Is the dirt coming out? You know, sometimes when <laughs> sometimes when I drive by I sort of see it all kind of coming out <laughs> of the building and kinda of go <laughs> you know <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, you know, so how do we relate to that? You know, how do we relate to it when it feels like we're invincible? and purity is happening, and that will happen. There'll be times when we'll feel invincible, and that we can't imagine that the practice could fall apart there. There really is that space that that happens. And then we hit the other side, the black hole, and it'll feel like we can't imagine that the practice could ever come together. You know, it's just like... They're two different worlds, and that's what we go through. We cycle through again and again. We're not always in those extremes, fortunately, but we certainly do go from that peak experience where it feels like mindfulness, energy, concentration. You know, the the factors of awakening start to come into balance, even when they come into balance for a few seconds where a few of the factors come into balance for a few seconds, never mind minutes, never mind hours. In that that time of purity, at some point, it is like washing our heart in a modern washing machine. I mean, it's really that powerful. And again, we we can underestimate that if we have just a few moments of loving kindness and they go, we minimize it. You know, we say, so what? Or we might have a, a few moments where we really are with a step or we really have received a cup of tea or whatever. And we might minimize it because it shifts. But but please understand that in those seconds, or again, it could be hours or whatever, um, there's a cleansing that happens. The little minor detail that we don't tend to appreciate in this process, and um, I didn't design it. (laughs) That's my disclaimer in this talk. (laughs) You know, this is just how it happens for us humans. As that purity happens, um, you'll start to notice that the energy will start to go down, or maybe the equanimity just shifts a little bit, and it'll feel like going from heaven to hell. And it's like... There'll be this place where we really—it doesn't—it doesn't matter what's happening. We understand that the—you know—the experience doesn't matter, right? It's like we have a relationship of wisdom and compassion with our experience. It's like all so clear, and then you can feel wanting come up. And you can, usually, if you're very quiet, you'll really want the good sitting back. I mean, within, within seconds we're yearning or longing for it back or we're having such aversion to something that happens that we blame, you know, for losing our great time. It could be that somebody just coughs. You know, it's that dramatic where we all of a sudden aversion appears again and we don't like it, you know, and it, so it's this shifting, you know, from that purity Inevitably to purification. And again, another way to describe that is when purity is happening, the appearance of the identification with aversion and attachment isn't happening. That doesn't mean that aversion and attachment aren't happening. It means that wanting will appear and it's totally fine. You know, it's that feeling like, oh yeah, it's just wanting. And all the teachings make sense. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's so clear. How could I, you know, you can't imagine, again, you can't imagine that you'd ever buy into wanting again. You know, and then, again, the opposite. Aversion might be there, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's just irritation. No problemo. Oh, great. You know, it's just like, it's just great. And then what happens when it comes back? and so this this process of purification is when the identification appears again and this is really critical to understand the the buying into the reactive mind comes back and so that's a separate self duality has come come back that that identification has come back and we don't like it but i would just suggest that this is important to 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 see that that's good practice you know that we have to start to get that we need to value when the dirt comes out because otherwise <laughs> we get stuck you know if no dirt is coming out you know then we're not we're not shifting into understanding more and more how to um Get liberated. Another way to say that is we hear the teachings about liberation, about being free of aversion and attachment, and there's a tendency in us to reject them and to feel like when they appear that something's wrong, that we're failing at the practice or we're no good, or that, you know, it's never going to stop. You know, it's just like, and it's that feeling again of oppression. Versus when we understand that when the appearance of the identification happens, we can go, oh boy, purification's happening. Did you do that today? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I'm identified with a virgin. <laughs> Great. I mean, really, that, there is this possibility of getting that they're equally important the purity and the purification. So why is this so hard, you know, for us? Well, a lot of it is that we don't understand that cycle. A lot of it is that we tend to judge when purity is happening as good practice. We tend to judge when purification happens as bad practice. If you start to kind of even begin to start to unconditionally accept this cycling. There's less reactivity to this cycle of cleansing, purity, cleansing, purity. And there's more energy freed up for going through it. You know, so I I know all of us remember in early practice, it's like the cycle, I'll do this with my hand movement, are really roller y You know, it's like, it's great, I'm doing great, ah, I'm doing terrible, I'm doing great, I'm doing terrible. You know, it's just the, the, the just incredible ups and downs. And then as we start understanding, it starts to curve. <laughs> you know, the, the, it starts not to get so... Um, such long, long, long um, periods of identification. There starts to get some holes in those um, clouds, those storms, or even light clouds of identification. And it's not as jagged. Um, It doesn't mean that it isn't painful. Um, And speaking of that, I would say that... um, Another aspect of this process is that the more we have glimpses, and we usually call them glimpses of purity, um, in that purity, again, even if it's just for a few seconds, when the identification comes back, the contrast is, is so um, visible. It's like it's so painful. When the aversion, the identification with the aversion comes back, and that's the suffering that ends suffering. When we talk about the process of being the suffering that ends suffering, it's that w- willingness to go through that shift from such purity and understanding. You know that that's one of the motivations why we're here. Certainly, is to really drop into these spaces. But also the other reason we're here is to um, really be willing to feel the suffering of wanting and the suffering of not wanting when we're identified with it because that contrast um, is, is so important to understand the difference and to see why we're doing this practice. So in terms of giving um, more context to this, and um, each week as the retreat goes on, I think we get a better sense of um, what the reactive mind really is. Um, and so we've talked about Vedana a lot, the the stream of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral that we don't have much control over. If we really just take some time to contemplate the joy and sorrow that all of us in this room have experienced, say. You know, not even just our own, but just in a lifetime, the range of suffering that we've experienced, all of us, in this room. And the range of joy, and the range of neutrality, uh, and the, the description of awakening uh, as being like a flower opening, you know, that, that um, whenever there's a moment of understanding or unconditional acceptance or loving kindness, the heart or mind is opening like a flower, like that. And the, a black hole is um, the opposite of that. A black hole or a lot of aversion is when we disappear. We disappear to survive pain. So again, some of you might want to open your eyes to see what I'm doing. It's like when we have a loss of a separate self by the opening, it feels wonderful. And it's like that. That's awakening. And when there's a full, complete moment of opening, we have let the universe totally touch us. It's complete understanding. That's awakening or it's called enlightenment, it's when there's just that complete, utter loss of a separate self, utter opening. Um, so we have, again, glimpses of that, and we love it. And then when something really painful happens, especially if it triggers something from the past that we couldn't open to, then the, the, the aversion or irritation becomes extreme aversion, and bloop, we disappear. That's annihilation that's a black hole that doesn't feel good we hate that you know it's a loss of self that feels horrible you know it's just the opposite and mostly what we're doing is we're kind of um, flowing in between these spaces and they're both um, possible to navigate with mindfulness so joy and sorrow um when there is pleasantness, um, a, a kind of often uninvestigated happiness and joy for us in the human world is when there is something pleasant. I mean, I finally um, was quite happy when the sun came out this afternoon. You know, the, and that's—it's not to, again. It's not to say, oh, we shouldn't feel this happiness because the sun came out. I mean, it was very wonderful. It was pleasant. We will feel happy usually when the sun comes out. Um, it's wonderful Uh, so again it's like can we open to that pleasantness can we open to the joy and then notice if we're starting to miss if there's enjoyment or excitement or enthusiasm or does it build and build you know that feeling when joy is kind of the energy is building up and up and up and we feel like we're going to go off like a rocket And maybe we start getting all caught up in telling people about the practice. You know, we might, you know, it's like we want to share everything at that point when we're so joyful. Or we might start planning things or whatever. But it's like we weren't mindful of that build-up from the pleasantness to the happiness to the joy to the enthusiasm. And we can go off like a rocket. And then again, with unpleasantness, there can be the unpleasant, there can be a mild irritation or grumpiness, there can be the build up of the aversion, and then if we're not mindful, it will be aversion to the aversion. And again, we can feel like we're going to be a volcano. Yeah, we can explode with aversion or rage. So there's this range of joy and sorrow that appear in this world when there's some degree of mindfulness and energy equanimity when these are you know when we feel more present, um, we actually start to get a sense of how beautiful the mind can be and the heart can be, and that that really taking birth here there's this possibility for this kind of ardent responsiveness, just a um, just a pure exploration, a pure responsiveness to the change of life and that being alive hurts and being alive feels great and being alive feels boring or neutral sometimes. There's this range. Um, and usually what happens when we're children, you know, we can be born very open as children. Yeah, there's the soft heart of the child, um, and then with the hard knocks of life, that openness starts to become more closed because there isn't enough wisdom to understand the pain in this world. You know, so so this, is, this is the process of when the opening will happen as the soft heart of the child will start to dare to come back into presence as we feel more protected by the mindfulness or the loving kindness or compassion. So we start to have the courage to feel the pain. We start to have the courage to feel the joy. And in fact, most of the people I work with over the years, it's actually become very clear to me that a lot of us are just afraid of the joy as the sorrow. Explore it. You know, it's like you might feel yourself really starting to just be so happy that the sun's out and then there's this like, well, it's probably going to rain tomorrow or, you know, whatever it is. It's like the, the unwillingness to be with that because we know it's going to change, yeah? Especially in New England. <laughs> you know, it's just, just, but that's a small metaphor for lots of ways in which I mean, I know that when I was a little kid, when I was my usual bouncy self, it's hard enough when I'm an adult. I'm a very open type. It's like people can attack me for that. When I was a kid, it was pretty predominant. But as an adult, it's still pretty predominant. It's amazing. It's so sad that people find it difficult to be with something or somebody open. And, you know, it's really important to explore, well, what is it that brings about that courage, and well, how does it happen? You know, it's usually when we take the time to be with something. You know, it's, it's when we take the time to really be interested in our breath, that it can be joyful to be with the breath. It's when we take the time, you know, how many times do you see a chipmunk here? and it doesn't make much impact but if you slow down and really take the time i can't imagine staying too depressed if you really took time to be with a chipmunk i mean they are just so up you know i mean they just like they just don't seem to be depressed you know <laughs> They're a great being to kind of hang out with. If there's any bummer, you know, long black holes happening, just go out there and hang out with the chipmunks. They're really good teachers. You know, there's all these beings in the universe to learn from. And they're really good teachers. So there's this, the world of a bird or the world of a chipmunk or the world of a squirrel. I mean, I learned so much from squirrels here. And I was born around here, so of course I can walk by a squirrel and think, "Yeah, you know, I'd rather see an eagle, right? You know, or a moose. You know, it's like when you're when you're born somewhere, the things that you live with become sort of boring and not interesting. But if you take time to watch a squirrel jump from one tree to another, you can learn a lot about courage and letting go. It's like watching them go up a tree and just jump from branch to branch. It's like that can help us really again have that willingness to be with difficulty, to jump. So we can learn in so many different ways (laughs) by paying attention to the mind for five minutes or watching a chipmunk or a squirrel that life is this spontaneous risk This over and over again, this spontaneous risk. And it's happening whether we show up for it or not. It's requiring us this kind of innovative responsiveness. You know, if we look at real innovation, that's what's being asked of us. And when do we shut down and why? Well, it's usually because of the pain in the world. Or the ending of um, pleasure. Pleasure. When I was in Burma this year, um, I met a Sayadaw down river, down the Irrawaddy River. Uh, and um, he was much more like kind of the open, joyful type. And um, it was really important for me to be with him and hang out with him because it was kind of like kindred spirits just kind of getting to be together. But, of course, we had to go through translation. Um, and I, I just wanted to ask him questions. Um, and we have a nickname for him now, the Happy Sayado. Uh, so I asked him about the four patanas that have being, been described um, with Stephen and Joseph during this retreat, and he just... Started laughing. He would, he always laughs. It's like ha 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 ha. ha. The forest, he <laughs> <laughs> It's just really funny. <laughs> um, he's like being with a chipmunk, really. You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. And you know, it, he described them as—it was amazing. He said, you know, it's like—it's like I live in this orchard. You know, and each moment of a different satipatthana is like a different orchard. And I just live in this um, world of, of luscious fruit. You know, And it was so amazing. It was like he described something so abundant, um, so wonderful. It's like that each moment with these, you know, of whatever, you know, like whether it's pain or whether it's... Um, metta, or whether it's loneliness, or whether it's um, boredom, or whether it's a tightness in the shoulder, or whatever it was for him, that's like being in an orchard, and he's getting to eat another delicious fruit. You know that it was so um, beautiful, and I think of that sometimes. It's like um, you know we have this abundance of rain sometimes or we have this abundance of earth under our feet, or we have this abundance of air for breath, we have abundance of whatever, but we forget, we forget that we're living in this abundance. And because he seems to emphasize that so much, um, I want to share another thing that he shared with us. At the end of the retreat, um, I really wanted to go back to see him. We'd only seen him once. i just met him. Um, But we're very busy when we're at Chazwa because, you know, we have a hospital project, school project. We're always at a lot of meetings that are challenging. Um, And we had a little bit of time just before uh, the manager had to give, in the West, we call it the Donna talk, right? At the end of the retreat, usually, that's what happens. And, you know, in Burma, they've never heard of a Donna talk. I mean, it's not even a concept, so... (laughs) Um, this, the manager said, well, I'll go with you, Michelle, if I can ask him about the Donna talk. And I said, sure. Well, okay. So we went and we were kind of rushing and we got there. And, um, so he asked, um, about Donna and (laughs) he starts laughing. He's like, you want to know about Donna? (laughs) And he slaps his knee and then he goes rushing up to his altar with You know, the Buddha, but they usually have, um, in Burma, there's usually offerings of fruit, of oranges, bananas. And he said, do you want to know about Donna? He got up and he got this whole pile of oranges and he threw them in the manager's lap. Like he went, that's Donna. <laughs> and, I, and we were all like, whoa. You know, we just never saw anything like this, you know. And so, and it, then, you know, we were just like, Wow. Okay, and then he went up to the altar again and he got all these bananas. And he said, You want to know about Donna? And he, like, gave everybody bananas. That's Donna. <laughs> and we were kind of like, Oh, you know, and then he was, of course, he didn't stop. He said, Look at the roof. That's Donna. Ha ha ha. And he said, Look at your body. He said, We have this precious human body. That's Donna. Everything is Donna. Everything's generosity. I mean, and it was so, again, it was just like so uplifting and profound. It's like, yeah, each moment is Donna. You know, and just the realization of that makes him happy. It's awake. It's alive. You know, it's so inspiring. I asked him... What it was like when he first moved up to um, this area, because he came from the south of Burma, and he came up when he was maybe in his mid-teens or late teens, uh, and he's ninety-four or five. So he was up in this area of Burma when it was quite remote and rural. And so I said, "Well, what was what drew you here?" And um, this area has a lot of caves. And people have been practicing in these caves for at least fourteen or fifteen hundred years, and that 's why a lot of monasteries and nunneries are there that it 's just filled with monks and nuns very inspiring place um, and in those days, he said he used to have to walk hours one way to beg for food, so we might have some idea that you know people go off in solitude and they get away from humans, right? You know, here we are with all these humans doing this practice and sometimes we can irritate each other and maybe I should be up at the forest refuge, maybe I should go off in some faraway place. But it was so interesting for me to listen to him because um, it was a couple of hours one way to beg for food, a couple of hours back to beg for food, and there were tigers each way. That's vulnerable. You know, it's like that that vulnerability of being that dependent on food. The Buddha created that as a way of life for people, you know, for a reason. And it's not that he didn't push extreme asceticism or extreme indulgence, but there is that sense again to remember that when we're born in the human world, we're vulnerable and that we're not, we're not doing the practice to avoid the fear. We're not doing the practice to avoid the dependence. We're not, you know, in fact, we're doing the practice again as a purification to face the aversion, to face the attachment on deeper and deeper levels. Because for those of us who have glimpses, and you can have more glimpses, it's like the contrast again between the purity... And the identification gets more and more excruciating. It should. It's painful (laughs) to be identified. And that's good to see, important to see. So how do we relate to purity? How do we relate to times of purification? That's what I'd like to ask you to really look at. And over time of practice, we often get a sense of the cycling of that in our own practice. We come to understand it. Um, and there is, there is a sense that we can go from um, coming into balance when there's no resistance to anything whatsoever. There's no resistance to aversion or attachment. There's just this complete transparency, a peak experience. Um, And then we can shift to feeling like a worthless, heavy lump of self. You know when you feel like a worthless, heavy lump of self? You know, it's so opposite that transparency, (laughs) we're so opaque, (laughs) Uh, and, and to see can we open to both, are both okay, can we learn not to identify with either, and really on a deeper level, that's where equanimity really develops. You know, you can fiddle around with calm or concentration. You can, you can play around with the factors of enlightenment, but equanimity takes time to ripen. And it's just like a pear ripening on a tree or an apple ripening on a tree. You know, you come into a long retreat mostly to ripen equanimity. And equanimity is unconditional acceptance. It's the happiness that isn't based on experience. And Lord knows how many times we get fooled by that, right? You know, over and over. That's what's so hard. We keep identifying with what we think is good and we keep, you know, pushing away the purification. Uh, And by going through the purity, purification, purity, purification, that's how um, experience starts to become tasteless. It doesn't mean that it isn't pleasant or unpleasant, but it's kind of like having um, in your hand, you know, without a glove on, you know, a hot potato. There's It's a great metaphor, but it's like, how long do you hold the hot potato before you put it down? And that's attachment to experience as something that's going to make us deeply happy. And I don't mean... The, ha- the surface, you know, shifts of sorrow and joy, but really that, that deeper, um, when we identify with experience as being me or I or mine, we suffer. And when we're not identifying with it, literally we can have anything happening and it's okay. Because there isn't that identification. This September, I went down to this um, place on Cape Cod that I've been to, I think, once or twice before now. Um, And if those of you know the map of Cape Cod, this is the very tip of the elbow of Cape Cod. Uh, And it's a place where um, kind of this end of the beach um, got cut off from the mainland of the Cape, so... um, there's a long stretch of beach that is not anything that any beach buggies can get to. Uh, and I like to take a little boat across the ocean to the very tip so that I don't have to walk for hours and hours to get to this place. And this is a place where, um, the seals, um, seem to be the endangered seals that I grew up with as a child are starting to make a comeback. And, uh, Last year when I went there, I kind of hung out with about four or 500 seals one, one afternoon when I was there. Um, so I decided to go back there for a day, and I only had a day. Um, and it, it's interesting because, because I've been there once, I have this memory of having a good time there. And I think sometimes when we have that, there's sort of this buildup of, kind of planning and excitement and of course then there's the holding back like well that could never happen again and maybe I shouldn't even go right because it you know can't possibly be as good or you know all those ways in which we try to like predict experience (laughs) rather than just whatever happens you know And, and so this this person that I got you know this person who owns this little boat shop now knows me and um that feels vulnerable too. It's just like, and that it, believe it or not, the same two men that had been fishing last year were in the boat. It was like we were all doing the same thing again in September. It was sort of odd, you know, and uh, um, it was the time of the edge of the, a hurricane, you know, this last September that just happened, and I had this backpack full of an umbrella, raincoat. I very, you know, like just, it was heavy, but I sort of felt like, well, I'll come, I, it looks like I better come prepared. And then I don't usually think too far ahead. And it, like they drop me off and then they drop these fishermen off at a whole other place that's much closer to where the boat places, and they tend to walk back. Um, but I get dropped off really far away. And then um, there's a pickup place, which is about two and a half hour walk where they drop me off. So they drop me off and then I get there and it's like, whoa, Seven hours. Like I had, and I don't, you know, it's like, it seemed like a good idea, but then I get dropped out there and it's like, well, seven hours, <laughs> I have to be here for seven hours. And it's the edge of a hurricane, you know, like my head started to do this, uh-oh, you know, this, this, just vulnerable. Can I just be with it, you know? And it was a totally different experience as my time there before. It was high tide, so the seals weren't out on the sand thing. And, you know, it's just like um, I had to just kind of settle in for some hours and just wait and see what I was doing there. Um, And it was, I mean, I could talk for hours about that experience because it was very wonderful. And what I want to get to in this particular story is that um, it was nice for a couple hours reasonably nice meaning it wasn't really pouring and about two and a half hours into this time out there this storm came I mean it was amazing you know it's this? it was totally clear right and I you know again it's like I'm not used to being down the cape anymore and the, the possibility of fog and not knowing where you're going because of the fog and you know all that you know it's just like I just com- I thought well maybe it will rain a little bit and this fog came in as well as this rain and wind and my umbrella was going <laughs> and finally just dis- disintegrated you know and it was very interesting again to sort of think that I kind of knew what was happening but I didn't know what was <laughs> happening at all it's like it got so um, foggy. That I couldn't see anything except for like if I walked right along the ocean, and I didn't. I only, you know, had to find this place once—the the pickup place, which was um, far away from where I was dropped off. Uh, so again, what I want to get to in the story is that I had to narrow down to this little teeny spot, like where my eyes could look along the ocean. And I realized that there was no way that I could try to... Um, this is a pretty wide strip of land. And so I couldn't even walk to the bay side. I was on the ocean side. Because if I walked to the bay side, I'd lose my orientation. There was no way I could go even a couple of feet without not knowing... If I was north, south, east, or west, it was that foggy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is interesting. And then I, I, I also had to realize that whenever I walked far enough, I was going to have to guess how to get, you know, which way to, you know, how to cross over to the Bayside side. And it was feeling even more vulnerable. Um, so I decided to try to do it by time, you know, that maybe I can... Um, guess like if I walk a certain amount of time that I can jump over to the other side and s- even if I was a little bit off maybe I could do it um so I was um you know when you do the microscopic attention and the field of a focus is just so small um and I did that for a couple of hours and then I I decided to cross over uh, and I got halfway to where I think I was go- gonna I was supposed to go. And I found this flower. It was like a, a small flower of goldenrod. It's called Seaside Goldenrod. Um, and it was just zillions of gold stars, a singular stem like out in the middle of the dunes, just one beautiful thing. And it was so stunning. I mean, it was just like, like the whole world was in this tiny flower. Um, and that's how microscopic attention is. It's like if you're doing the slow walking, if you're walking around here where you're not make you know looking up and around. The idea of that is that you find the whole universe within the breath, or you find the whole universe within a sound. You, f- you know, it's like it's very much you narrow the focus so that the whole world opens up within that narrow focus. And then at a certain point of just hanging out with this flower, it started to clear, and it was. <laughs> I mean, I didn't even know how singular my attention had become, and it cleared quite fast. It was kind of interesting. The wind came and the, the the fog blew, and I just started to see this boundless sky and boundless open ocean, and I could see these fishing boats out there. But it was just like I, it was like I was reborn again. I just it was. It was amazing, and my heart almost couldn't bear the expansiveness of it. And it was just like this shifting from totally microscopic to totally macroscopic. And it was just like that infinity that we dance in. Just just this is the range we're, we're capable of. It's like the mind is vast. And there's so, um, when the heart is just open and soft and purely exploring, this is one of our birthrights. Now this is what this is what we're doing here is is we've come here. you know why did you come here? Why did you take birth? Well, we can either be in a protective stance or we can be with the intention to learn, and they're really different and and it's important to start to understand when we're in the protective stance and why, and how, how does the practice help us there? And then when we're not in the protective stance, when we feel protected enough to, to be willing to explore. You know, if we feel safe, we will explore. If we don't feel safe, we'll get back into that fight or flight. And that's it's when we start feeling that separate self, and it feels so painful. I think we all know um, the times in practice, whether it's the beginning of practice or when we're very identified. You know that when a thought appears, you know where you could note thinking, and really it literally is like we are. We have a we have a baseball bat. You know, and it's like thinking. You know, or fear. You know, or whatever it is. It's like irritation. You know, there's no space in the mind. And it's so painful, but it does require a kind of firmness so that we have some way of getting a little space, yeah? But then when we start to get some space, the practice changes. And again, that can be within an hour of sitting or five minutes or within time of practice as you go along in the years of practice. What you will start to see is you start getting a lot more space when things appear. So there isn't a need to keep them away so much. You know, so that, say, with fear, something like fear, where it would either be that the protective stance would, would be to really push it away because we kept getting caught in the story over and over. Yes, the initial instruction with something like an emotion like fear would be to be careful of getting involved in the storyline, yeah? Because if you're totally in the storyline, again, I'm in my uh, making hand gestures here, it's like if you're in the storyline, your attention is totally in your head. And how, how much of our time as humans are we lost in our head? It's a lot. You know, I mean, it's tragic, but if you look at how much time you're spending in your (laughs) head, it's a lot. And so the initial part of practice is to get you out a lot, you know, and it's kind of like training a dog to sit, 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 Sit. It's kind of boring, right? You know, it's like when you first start to learn to practice, it's like you're trying to get out of this, endless identification with thought it's like come out come out come out come out come out you're walking it's like oh yes yeah, step anything you can do anything all the techniques of practice are to try to get you out of that incessant chatter and over time the instructions will change so that if there's enough space what's our definition of an emotion Well, it's usually some thought, it's some body sensation. Sometimes there's no story, sometimes there's a lot of stories, sometimes it's loneliness, sadness, um, and fear. You know, sometimes it's a whole conglomerate of um, emotion. Um, But I find as practice has changed that I let the story come and go. I don't need to really do anything with it or to get rid of it. And it's pure, there's just as much purity. And that, when there's no need to do anything with the story, it'll just come and go, because I'm not identified. And how do I, you know, it's like, how do you know it's fear sometimes? Because my thoughts say, I'm afraid. You know, it's like those thoughts tell me that I'm afraid. In fact, usually when I say, I'm afraid, it's a huge accomplishment. You know, just to be able to simply say, I'm afraid. Ah. When I first started to be able to do that, it was such a miracle to me that I could be that simple, that honest, and not make a big deal out of it, but just see then if I could connect with that experience and to really make space. Sometimes there will be thoughts. Sometimes there will be physical sensations. Sometimes there will be no story. Sometimes the story will feel like a storm. Um, And it's all okay the more space we have. So really, you know, that starts to be what happens. And as I've started to work even with thinking, you know, noticing, remembering my first retreat, where again, I would be lucky if I could notice a breath or a sound for five minutes at the end of a sitting. I remember that. I remember being lost in thought, you know, and... Kind of like, and a, you know, that would be a good sitting. A good sitting would be lost in thought for 40, 40 minutes and then maybe a few breaths or sounds and the bell would ring and it would be, oh boy, that was great. You know, I did really well. You know? And a bad, <laughs> what I would call a bad sitting would be, I used to pray to Mary, you know, I was raised Catholic. I used to pray to Mary that they would ring the bell. Like, I'd just sit there praying, <laughs> you know, because I was in so much pain. Now, I would call that a bad sitting. And and I, was, I went to this retreat where people had been sitting. It was in 1975. It was the first three-month retreat in the United States. And it was winter, <sighs> and people had been sitting two and a half months when I got to this retreat, um, and the bell would ring. And most of the people in the hall were sitting for two and a half months, and then they let some of us in the last bit of time. And I'd walk to the edge of the hall, and I'd just stare at people that were sitting there, like after the bell would ring. I mean, I was like... I just, like, I really, I'd stare at them for half an hour. I just couldn't, like, I'd be like, how can they do this? What's wrong with them? You know, it's just, it's scared. Sometimes it scared me, you know, like, am I going to turn into that? You know, like, (laughs) 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 which it did, which I did, you know, for a time. And, you know, they just, they just looked, you know, how could they not move after the bell rang? You know, I just couldn't wait to get out of the hall. You know, so that will change. You know, a lot, you know, changes over time where you keep getting more space and more space. And then how you work with the experience, it's the same stuff. It was the same, kind. it was thinking, it was thinking happening when I first started practicing, but I had no space to work with it. It was fear happening, but sometimes it would take me three or four hours to even know that I was afraid that's okay. It's like wherever we are, you know, you just kind of keep with it and keep with it. And it literally is just like, you know, if you look at a spiral, if you take a cross-section of a shell, if you look at the spiral, it's just, there's the same center. And that's what we're learning to do. We're learning to have this centered responsiveness. And, you know, as, as we continue with the practice, there's more and more space around the same thing, more and more space around the same thing. And it's amazing. Another way to put that is that we become less afraid of the reactive mind. And then we get less afraid of the reactive mind and less afraid of the reactive mind. And you know and that, that's when we really start feeling that purity of exploration. Joyful interest um, really starts to um, help us distinguish what mindfulness really is. Um, so by pure exploration, I mean that uh, that soft heart of the child. Uh, it's why that expression, beginner's mind, can be so inspiring. Um, because, it, you know, the mind of a child that spirit of starting again. I mean, how many times do you start again when you're learning to walk? And how many times do you fall? You know, and it's just, it just, just that feeling of just doing it again and doing it again. We forget. We forget what it was right, like to ride a bicycle, to, to learn. It's like learning to develop a relationship of wisdom and compassion with each moment of our life is much harder than learning how to walk. You know, so we fall down and we fall down, and it's okay. It's like that's the purification. It's part of the process. It's how we learn. Rece- uh, a couple years ago, I guess my, my great-niece is five years old now, and I think this happened, I can't remember now, if she was three and a half, probably three and a half, but it was around the time when I was first getting to know her Um, and one of the things I've learned from her is sort of this, um, she's very, she's unable to hide her emotional world. You know, it's just like, she just has no ability to censor it or hold it back, and it kind of. She reminds me of me. She, like I know she's like the black sheep already, and I was, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to protect her, but it's impossible. Um, but it, it's been really fun to watch her. Just you know, when she really likes something, she just really, really likes it, you know. And when she doesn't like something, she really, really doesn't like it. Or if she wants to go up and play, or even to lay down in bed, you know. She'll be like well, let's really, you know, let's go to lay down in bed, you know. It's just, do you do that at night? You know, like, oh, boy, it's time to go to bed. You know, there's just that um, joyful interest, and it's quite um, wonderful for me to be around. Uh, And she, (laughs) I went down there with this friend of mine that, um, the reason for it was because it was right after my dad died, and I just wanted somebody to sort of buffer me with my family um, and I think it was uh, yeah it was my great yeah my niece's forty fortieth birthday party, and we went to this place and then afterwards we were all hanging out in the upstairs of my sister 's place and it was quite crowded and they had a video on of one hundred one Dalmatians that cartoon so the kids there were a bunch of kids they were watching it, and um, my niece is very attached to me when I'm around, and I didn't realize it at the time how attached she was, and she considered this person with me, um, I guess, a threat, you know, but I didn't know that at the time. I was just getting to know her, so she was sort of um, acting like things were okay. She was acting like she was watching this video, like with everybody else, and this, I was doing, I was talking to my sister. She doesn't even like me to talk to my sister, You know, she doesn't like me to do anything but pay attention to her. And I'll say, you know, she doesn't even get it. You know, it's like that her mother's my niece. You know, she's too young. She doesn't get, why why would I want to pay attention to her? You know, she's just, but she's so, she can't hide it. You know, she tries to pretend she's not jealous, but she's so jealous. It's so funny. You know, and I just love being around that honesty. There's a point to this meaning this practice makes us more honest, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just like we have to say to ourselves, Oh, yeah, I am irritated. Oh, yeah, I don't like that this experience is passing. So much of this practice is about being honest. You know, it's just, it's like humbling, so humbling. Oh, yeah, I want to feel special. Oh, it hurt that that... You know, sometimes when I think of the things that I get hurt by, you know, and it's just like, and I try to talk myself out of it, you know, it's like, ouch, ouch that shouldn't hurt i shouldn't hurt like that and it's like my body's going but it did hurt <laughs> you know you are jealous or you know whatever it is oh you know it's just just that capacity in ourselves to want to deny what's happening in the present moment you know and that's where the flower closes and again reminding us you know that if we're aware of jealousy if we bring wisdom and compassion to it there's freedom if we think it shouldn't be happening, we're suffering. And so at any rate, you know, everybody was sort of distracted. Some people were talking, some people watching this movie, and this friend of mine was sort of getting, I could tell he was getting, like, kind of bored and trying to just lay down and maybe disappear. And then all of a sudden, you know, Brenda, my great-niece's name is Brenda. she went over to him and she kicked him in the head, right, really hard, like... Wham! Like wrestling, like wham, you know. And and my family like likes denial. I mean, we you know we've we've mastered denial, you know. And so everyone just was like horrified. This is not acceptable in my family, except if my father. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, she like um, she just couldn't help herself, right? She did it, but everybody went running over to her, yelling at her, "You shouldn't have done that." And she said but I hate him. (laughs) And then it was amazing. It was just amazing. Everyone said, no, you don't. You don't hate him. And she looked at me completely confused. You know, it's like, and this is where our hearts shut down. This is an example because... She looked completely confused, and I knew I couldn't intervene publicly at that point. You know, And they're like, you know, remember, you apologize, you don't hate him, you know, stop it, you know, you shouldn't have, the whole thing, just everybody was yelling at her. And she almost started crying, but she kept it together, and she apologized, and then she came over, and she got in my lap and waited till everyone was distracted again. And then <laughs> she, she, she whispered in my ear, she pulled my hair off my ear, And she put her hands so that no one could hear and she whispered and she said, But I do. (laughs) I really, really hate him. (laughs) And I said, I know you do. (laughs) It's okay. And it was great because I said, It's okay to dislike him, it's okay. You know, and she looked so relieved because the confusion was gone. You know, and then I said, "But when you hate someone, you don't kick them." <laughs> you know. And it's like that's a lot of what we're doing here in the practice is undoing all that no you don't, you don't feel this, no I don't, I don't do that. No, 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 no. It's much more kind of just making the space, the safety to just be whatever we are. And it's humbling. It's like it's so humbling to be human. I mean, I don't know anything more humbling than a day of meditation <laughs> practice. I mean, really, it's just, even when it's going well, you know, the, you know, the moment you believe one of those thoughts, just all you have to do is believe one teeny tiny thought. It's just, you know, you can be in agony for hours. You know, I don't like that t- twinge in my knee, you know. Oh, no, I'm going to be crippled. You know, <laughs> you know, it's just like whatever it is, but it's just like that, just one little thought, then the next thought, and we're in the future. And ultimately, um, bringing together the soft heart of a child with the wise, compassionate, old being that we can be, when we bring those together, it's like... Um, We want to be humbled. You know, I know when I'm the deepest in practice and when I feel the most open, I really want to face the purification. I really want to see where I'm stuck. You know, and I and I ask for it. And, you know, I think you've all come here from some kind of moment like that. You, If you're in this room, you had to have a moment where you touched into... I think all of us in our hearts have this deep aspiration to be free. You know, and it's amazing when you think about that, that if, if there's enough protection and safety and quiet, that all of us long to be free. And, and that that's what brings us here. And it's really both. It's the glimpses of purity. But it's also we ask for what we need to grow. You know, and when when we receive it, we usually don't like it. You know, it's like when it really gets bad, I'll think, well, I didn't really bargain for this, right? You know, I didn't really come to this retreat to face whatever. You know, you don't really get that you came to the retreat to face irritation. But we did. Or whatever, whatever it is that we're struggling with, we forget that that's partly why we're here, To learn. To learn the skill of how to work with that, so that when it appears, we feel free, and also to remember that when we get free with something, we can help somebody else. And it's just like um, scuba diving—you know, you go underwater. I've heard this from scuba divers, and if if somebody runs out of out of air with their scuba tank. You know, it's like you have the air, you pass it back and forth with this person. It's like it's only if you have the air that you can save them. And it's just like if somebody's really afraid, if you don't know how to be mindful and compassionate with it, you can't help somebody. But if you know how to do it, you can help somebody. So it's not, you know, like an isolation tank here where we're doing some kind of selfish thing. It's really everything you learn to have a soft, open heart with and learn a relationship of wisdom and compassion with, then you can help somebody else with that. So you become a sanctuary and a spiritual friend to yourself, and then you can become a sanctuary and spiritual friend for others. So may the purification keep going. Let's sit for a minute. So bring it on, bring it on, the purification. (laughs) May we be free from suffering.